Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's in the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you get to Mark, Luke, and John, you've gone too far to the right. Go back to the left. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 will be our primary text. Before we um, begin to investigate this particular passage, I want to invite you to something that I have been, along with our church, invited uh, to. Um, which is a great way to start a relationship, right? You get invited to something, you just invite everybody you know to what you've been invited to. But there's an event happening in our neighborhood called, called Las Posadas. Las Posadas means the ends. And um, many Mexican Logan Square, you will of Mary and Joseph, looking for a place for the Savior to lay his head. And in Logan Square, what will be happening through the Logan Square Ecumenical Alliance is that a number of people will gather at the Eagle, the monument, right in the middle of the circle in Logan Square, and move to different places and essentially ask the question, is there room in this inn? Is there room for the language will be used, the holy families of Logan Square, those who need a place to lay their heads. And, and therefore, it will be deeply challenging to many of us. Are you already feeling uncomfortable? That we will be going to different places because one of the most significant needs in Logan Square is affordable housing. The one project that is 100% affordable housing in Logan Square was just ratified a couple of weeks ago. And so there are very few opportunities for families of low or lesser income to find good quality housing in Logan Square. Now, whatever reason or whatever methodology or whatever framework you believe in, we as a church do not believe it's okay for the most vulnerable to be overlooked. And therefore, being invited to this event does not mean that we would see and say everything the exact same way. In fact, there are some things that we wouldn't say and see and do the exact same way, but our neighbors are inviting us over and we are accepting the invitation. And therefore, we want to encourage all of you, Saturday, this Saturday coming up, uh, December 14th at 10 a.m., we are meeting at the Logan Eagle to walk around with brothers and sisters, with our friends and neighbors to simply ask, is there a place here for the families of Logan Square to live? I hope that this frustrates some of us. I hope that this encourages some of us. I hope ultimately that those who are frustrated, those who are encouraged, will be drawn together because of the mercy of Jesus. That would become more and more the church God's called us to be in this neighborhood at this time for such a time uh, as this. If you have any questions about that, all of our elders would be happy to chat more. We're going to be e emailing out more information this week, Las Posadas, 10 a.m. on Saturday, meeting at the Eagle so that we can walk with and learn, ask questions, and identify with our brothers and sisters who maybe are going through a situation and story that your family has never actually had. And therefore, it will be deeply helpful for us to know what our neighbors are going through. With that being said, please hear these words from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of of Abraham. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you we're going back to the same place that we went last Sunday. We thank you that we're going to the same place that, that some of us were this morning. We thank you that we're going back to the place where we are to go when we are celebrating, when we are sorrowful, when we're frustrated, when we're at peace. We thank you that we get to gather and go to the Word of God. Oh, it's such good news that we're not gathering today wondering what a human being has to say. We thank you that we are not gathering together wondering what is the latest fad with the best return on investment that we can hitch our wagons to, that we can get excited about and hope in and hope for. We thank you that we get to come back to that old, old story of Jesus and his love. We thank you that we get to come back to what we have just sung, that the ancient of days, the one who is the I am, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, Lord Jesus, for the joy set before you endured the cross and despised its shame. Thank you. I need help, I know, through my week, remembering just when I'm frustrated with my children or with travel or with my house or in my situation or in relationships or in marriage or in friendships or in our neighborhood, that we get to go back to the same place, to your word, to be grounded, to be corrected, to be challenged, to be rebuked, to be encouraged, to be loved, to be built up, to be healed. 
And so we thank you, Father, that as we gather as brothers and sisters, men and women who desire to follow you, love you, obey you, we all get to go to the same place together. And so would you unite us in your word? Would you encourage us in your word? Would you fill us up in your word? And would you protect us as our mind wanders to the wisdom of this age? Would your word hold us fast? Would your word ground us deeply in reality and joy? We pray that, Father, not so that there would be some instant fix in our hearts, but so that we would become more obedient as we leave this place than we did when we came. We'd be more trusting, more assured, more confident, but we'd look to you more than we did than when we came. So unite us together as your people, and we pray in all things that you're glorified, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, let's be honest. When we read one verse, we get a little bit nervous. It means that it could be really quick or really, really long, right? When the preacher reads one verse, he may make much of like a single article and take a long time explaining the word book or of, right? And I assure you that perhaps some of us else may look at this and just go, there's not much content here. I don't know what we're going to do. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. At first blush, there may not seem like there's much there. In fact, in the original language, it's less words than in the English. It's only eight words. And yet within those eight words, there are three titles given to us of Jesus. Christ, Jesus, and Son. And these three words, along with three others, will guide our Advent series for us as we consider the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, and on earth, under heaven, and below the earth at all will come to know this name. And so in the Advent season, as we long for, along with God's people throughout time, we long for and we expect Jesus, we must consider who is this Jesus? Who is it that we wait for? Here, as I mentioned, we will see the word Jesus or the title or the name Jesus. We will also see Christ. We'll see Son. And through the rest of Matthew 1 and 2, we'll add to our consideration Emmanuel, and King, and Nazarene, and each of these titles or names that Matthew speaks of Jesus will add to a wider, more fully-orbed perspective of who this Messiah actually is, because we are so hurried during this season, right? For my children, it's either now or never, and I wonder how much that's true for me. If Christmas is not tomorrow, it is not happening. If Advent is not right now, then it's probably not happening. And yet there is much that takes place in our waiting that comfort and knowledge actually don't afford us. There is much that happens in pausing, considering, waiting, lamenting, being curious, asking questions that the Lord shapes in us that perhaps he could not shape in us if he just gave us the answers if he took away our waiting, and and I've got to say to you, that's deeply comforting to me. Because how much of life is waiting? How much of life is between the already and not yet? How much of our faith is reading something in the scriptures and then looking in real space, real time, and saying, how long, O Lord, until I see it happen here? How long, O Lord, until we see the fullness of your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven See, Matthew wants to take time to explain to us Jesus so that we might behold him rightly, that we might behold who he is. We might know and understand the Son of God who took on flesh to whom every knee will bow. Today, we'll look at his title, his name, Son, but perhaps not in the way that we presume. See, many scholars read the opening line of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, more like a title than they do like an introductory sentence. Since what you and I know as the books of the Bible really are given their titles much later, it's important for us to understand what the author may have intended to be this particular title. The the scriptures or the canon made of these 66 books of the Bible, many of them given their names after they became part of the canon in order to distinguish the author, distinguish what specifically the subject matter would be in that particular book. Now, one indication that Matthew intends for this to be a title is the kind of language that's reflective of Genesis in particular. See, when you look at the book of genealogy, 
In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's identical to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, that says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And Genesis 5, 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. These two Genesis references speak of creation, the creation of the world, the generations of the first man of human race. The implications, then, of this parallelism is fantastic. It's wonderful. What Matthew is doing is weaving within the very first verse, or rather the title of his gospel account is the point of his gospel account, where Genesis is giving us a story in chapter 2 and 4, verse 4, and 5, verse 1. Here is the creation of all things through God. Now what Matthew is saying is here's the recreation of all things through God. He's setting us up for a joyful retelling of this parallelism, this poetry that is woven through the very first verse or title of Matthew. Theologian F.W. Bear concludes the expression was intended to be the title of the entire gospel, conveying the thought that this will be the story of the new creation. Where we have had the story of creation, now we will have the story of the new creation. Genesis is saying this is how God made the world. What Matthew and the Gospels are going to tell us is this, how, this is how God remade it. This is what God has done to redeem. Another indication that this first line is a title is the rarity with which Matthew employs Jesus Christ. Those two names or that title and that name together only shows up three times in Matthew. And the two other times that it shows up, many of the earliest documents don't even have both of those. That may have been a later edition. So many believe this is the one place in his entire gospel account that Matthew puts Jesus and Christ together, drawing attention to two very distinct yet very complementary ideas about who this Son of Man, this Son of God is. That He is Jesus, rather the long-awaited hope of salvation. His name means Jesus, God who saves. An anointed one, Christ, that He is the Messiah in the flesh. See, just the title Jesus Christ bears much for us to consider. So with the nature of this title in mind, Let's consider the specifics of sonship, because that's Matthew's focus in this particular title. He brings two of Jesus' predecessors in, in terms of his sonship, here at the very beginning, David and Abraham. Now, if you've been around the church for a minute, you probably have been exposed to these two particular names, but isn't it true, the more familiar we become with something or someone, the less we truly understand about them. We start presuming and assuming and get comfortable and not thoughtful. And therefore, it's important for us to recall, who is this Abraham? Who is this David? Abraham should be understood sort of summarily as the father of the nation of Israel. Genesis chapter 17 teaches us this, introduces us to him. David is the second yet greatest king of Israel and known perhaps most intimately as the man after God's own heart. And so to understand the importance of the sonship of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, we need to take a moment to consider more deeply who these two men were and are. Abraham first. Abraham is also known as Abram. This was his name before his encounter with the God of the Bible. Genesis chapter 11, verse 26, is where we learned when, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. The next scene, verses 27 through 33 in that chapter 11, is the summary of Abram's father's life until his death. It's a pretty quick summary. And much of the rest of Genesis is, is given over to explaining not only Abraham, but now the story of his family. Hear this from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and he who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice from the very beginning that Abram's family is not about Abram. This is, this is really counterintuitive to the culture that Abram found himself in. It was all about the patriarch. But notice from the very beginning, it's not even about Abram. And notice even this family or this nation is not about this family. It's not about this nation. From the very beginning, Israel would be blessed. They would be a blessed nation called to bless all the nations. 
called to bless all the people, a people blessed by God to go and share that blessing with those around them. In other words, God's people were established from jump as a global people as a global people with a perspective not just on their own ethnicity, their own culture, their own personhood, but all those around them. This dispels a particular mythology about our faith that it began with this one people group. And when that one people group, it didn't work out for them, then God's like, let's try everybody. Not so. This was always God's heart. This was always God's plan that he would be God of the universe and his people would be blessed that they may be a blessing to all peoples. The scriptures do not support some sort of monolithic deity of a single people group. Rather, the God of the Bible has always been global. He has always been a multi-ethnic God, a God for all peoples. God is the one who from the very beginning called his people to be holy, not so that everybody would look and go, wow, how holy are you, but wow, tell me about your God. Tell me about your God. Tell me about the God of Israel who is distinct and different from every other God who other nations serve. See, in tying Jesus directly to Abraham, then in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is making a claim that Jesus' pedigree is consistent with prophetic words that Israel, whose long-awaited hope, would now be in this person of Jesus. Not to bless a single people group, but would be given away to salvation for all peoples of every tribe, of every tongue, and of every nation. This is the fulfillment of the nation that God had always promised Israel. My brothers and sisters, Jesus is a cosmic Christ. He is not just yours. He is not just mine. And how often do we spend our weeks believing so, acting so? He is a cosmic Christ that cannot be bound, not by your culture, not by your perspective, not by your comfort zone, but by his glory, he is unbound. We learn this through the sonship he has in Abraham. Therefore, as God's people, even as a local expression here at Church in the Square, in Logan Square, we are not given over to the feeble luxury of only thinking about ourselves of only saying what's best for those who are in the room. Do they like the seats? Do they like the temperature? Do they like the flow of the lobby? Everybody okay? Are we good? Do you like the children's ministry? Do you like the songs? Do you like the preacher off with his head? I don't know. See, if we only dabble in the things that deal with us, we have missed what it means to be us. We have missed what it means to be the church. Not that those things that I have just mentioned are unimportant. They are not primary though. They are not central. They are not summarily picturing what we are supposed to be about. We're to be a church for the nation. See, it's never a question of if, but when and how are to be a church that brings discipleship to the nations. How are we to be a church that's about the Great Commission fully and completely? Since our launch in 2018, this has been a consideration for many men and women who have gathered to pray about this. This has been a consideration of our finance team, who from the very beginning have been setting aside 10% for external opportunities of ministries and works. Some of those will be global discipleship. And this effort has been, and by God's grace will always be, whatever and however he leads us to fully embody this great commission, however he leads us to do this, is a response not to our preference, but the nature of the sonship of Jesus the Messiah born in the line of the Father of Israel, a people commissioned to bless the nations. Being a global church is not a preference of the local church. It is part of the commission of a people who have been called by the son of Abraham, the one who is to be the fulfillment of a nation for all people. How about son of David? It's a little bit complicated with David. David's known as Israel's greatest king. His arrival was the reversal of the first king, Saul, who was instituted as this this sort of bold, tall, head and shoulders strong over others, right? And it's important to understand that the launch of this kingship in 1 Samuel 8 was when Israel looked around. They looked around, they're like, yo, they got a great king over here at this nation. They've got a great king over here. And they seem to be growing. They seem to be a growing nation. They seem to be a thriving nation. They seem to be going up the top 100 charts. Things are going for them. Their GDP is increasing. We love what's going on in that nation. Let's get us a king. Let's get us a king. We want a king to rule like that, to increase our finances, to increase our borders, to do all of this. Isn't it interesting 
that Abraham was blessed to be a father of the nations, so the nations would see Israel, and they would say, who is your God? Now here in 1 Samuel 8, the, the, the nation of God, Israel, is looking to other nations and saying, we want to be like them. This is, this is the story of the human heart. God says, I'm going to bless you that you might be a blessing. You're like, ah, but they got some good blessings over there. Can we have some of those? Wouldn't it be great if the Bible just talked about the people who were dead and gone and already we just point the finger at them and never talks about us, right? Saul was strong. He was tall. He was probably really handsome. Leader of men. But his arrogance led to this perpetual disobedience and concluding with God's ultimate extinguishing of dispelling of him as the king of Israel. And he selects David, who is literally the exact opposite of Saul. David was young. He was small, he was impulsive, and he got forgotten a lot. I'm sure at the grocery store with some regularity. Hear this from 1 Samuel 16, verse 11. You think I'm lying, listen to this. Then Samuel said to Jesse, after he'd looked at all of his sons, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. David, the left-out runt son of Jesse, is selected to be the king over Israel. Now, if you know anything about David you know that his story is less than perfect, less than holy. What begins as this very humble, rooted, young man becomes a very arrogant king who steals the wife of one of his soldiers, and then when he realizes what he has done, he has that soldier murdered. And yet it's through David, this king, the long-awaited king of Israel, the Messiah would come. That's always been true. Since David's kingship, God has promised another king through David was on the way. And what Matthew is saying is this is him. Isaiah anticipated this in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a son is born, to us a child, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David over his government to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This promise was actually proclaimed over David by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's the connection also that Luke saw as unavoidable. Luke chapter 1, verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Another king, a truer king, a better king, would come through David one day, and what Matthew is saying is it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that we have been waiting for. Abraham, therefore, is key for us if we are to understand the candidacy of Jesus for Messiahship. If the Messiah was to be Israel's Messiah, he would have to be Jewish. Matthew says he is the son of Abraham, and David would be key if this messianic candidate would also sit on a throne, that he'd be regal, he'd be royal, he'd be king. So that's his title, son of David, son of Abraham, exploding with definition and understanding of what it means to the Messiah. This is the historic and biblical context of what it means that we call Jesus son. Having established this connection, he now, though, has to prove it. It's one thing to just say, trust me, he's the son of David. Trust me, he's the son of Abraham. Now Matthew has to do a little bit of ancestry homework. He's got to do like his best ancient 23andMe, right, to kind of express how he knows that this Jesus is connected to David and connected to Abraham. He has to track the genealogy of Jesus to Abraham through David to that current moment. And he does this, church. 
He does this with like spectacular literary and artistic excellence. But let's be honest. He does it in Matthew 1, 2 through 17. And I just want to be willing to wager, very few of us have actually read these verses before. We may have gotten to like two, three, maybe four if you're varsity level, right? But then you go, ah, these are just names. They're just listing a bunch of people. Let me see where that stops, and I'll pick it up again. Oh, verse 18, that's nice. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. I'll pick up my devos there, right? You're not laughing, you're lying, because I do this all the time. Ultimately, this is a particular portion of Scripture that we just skip. There's a lot, there's some books of the Bible that we skip. We go, that's even more names. Numbers, there's just like numbers sometimes. And I'm like, I get the picture, I'll skip the book, I'll trust if Jesus quotes it in the Gospels. So it's not surprising that we skip over this, but in skipping over it, we miss some critical, beautiful things. Names are actually missing. Generations are skipped over. Not everyone who's said to be the father of is actually the father of. Women show up in this genealogy. Can I get an amen? This genealogy isn't even the bloodline of Jesus. It's the bloodline of Joseph, and he was born of Mary. All of a sudden, what seems to be a boring portion of Scripture, I hope I've intrigued you just enough, be something that we ought to consider more deeply. What's te- it's teeming with messianic evidence, vibrant grace, and a formula, an understanding, a form, a shape of the family history from which Jesus has come. Let me explain it, but first, let's actually read verses 2 through 17. Buckle up, church. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jothan, and Jothan, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and Jeconiah, and his brothers, and at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shelatel, and Shelatel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Manatha, and Manatha the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. These are the very words of God. Thank you. With that being said, let's talk biblical numerology. Now, many of us perhaps know biblical numerology from different guesses about when Jesus is going to return. Steeped in a particular kind of Christian culture, me even know one of the latest uh, fails at this, a man by the name of Harold Camping out in Oakland, California, who through Daniel 12 and Revelation 22 believed that the rapture was going to take place on May 21st, 2011. Best I know, it didn't happen that day, as best I know. As best I know, thanks be to God. And as best I know, everyone who has taken a shot at guessing the day has been wrong. Therefore, perhaps one of the greatest casualties of biblical numerology as we have been exposed to it is that we don't listen to it, we don't think about it, and anytime someone tries to make a math statement from the scriptures, we're like, yo, that's, that's wrong, that's not a thing. Well, I would just like to encourage you math majors that it is a thing and it's very important. Here's what I'd like to suggest through an idea called gematria. Gematria is a Hebrew system of giving numbers to letters, particularly consonants. It's a way of organizing the Hebrew alphabet that gives numeric value to it. Now, why does this matter? 
Why does it matter in Matthew 1? First, when we consider David's name, the three consonants are what? D, V, D. The gematrial value for those three letters are 4, 6, 4. What does that equal? Anybody? 14. Can I get an amen? Respectively, those values together mean 14. Secondly, look at verse 17. All the generations from each section are what? 14. Third, the actual number of generations in each section that was listed here from Matthew 1 is 13, 14, and 13, respectively. 14 being right in the middle, and a Hebrew system of counting gives value or supremacy to the inverted number there in the middle. It gives an extra weight to it. Lastly, David's name is exactly 14th. It's the exact 14th name listed in the genealogy. Are you feeling the Spirit of God blow through this place yet? 14, 14, 14, 14. What's with all the 14s? Well, it's obvious that Jesus is coming back on the 14th day of some month. We just don't know which one. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, it could be. It could be 14. I don't know. Here, here's what I think is more important and probably only important is that the alignment of all of these numbers is giving significant weight to the organization the intentionality and the centrality of David's kingship in the genealogy. So the point that Matthew is making in his structure of this genealogy is the centrality of the Davidic line, making sure that we see that Jesus doesn't just happen to fall on this tree. This is a divinely organized, a divinely timed, a divinely detailed genealogy in which Jesus springs forth from it, connected to it. Jesus doesn't just happen to fall in this particular family tree. It has been ordained, planned, prepared, and promised by God himself. These gematria insights reveal all of this. Secondly, though, there are women in this genealogy. Gives us a massive window into the heart of God and the meaning of this particular passage. First, women were never included in genealogies in the first century. And certainly, if, if an author is going through the painstaking process of wanting us to see the royal heritage of this particular person, Jesus, then it is a bad idea to unnecessarily include women in terms of proving the bloodline. You don't need to do that. And, and unexpected and completely unconventional. It will be distracting to those who read it, and they may miss the main regal point that Matthew is making, but he includes them anyway. Why? Well, let's consider these first four women and consider their connection. Verse 3, Tamara, she tricked her father-in-law to sleeping with her, and she bore twins, Perez and Zerah. Rahab, verse 5, she was a prostitute who helped Israelite spies who were scoping out Jericho before the walls fell down. Ruth, verse 5, she was widowed, a widowed Moabite woman who pursued Boaz herself and became his wife. Bathsheba, here as the wife of Uriah in verse 6, she was the woman with whom King David committed adultery. These women, at first blush, have very little in common. In fact, one of my seminary professors, scholar Greg, Craig Blomberg, explains in his commentary of Matthew this. The only factor that clearly applies to all four is that suspicions of illegitimacy surrounded their sexual activity and childbearing. They shared shame. In particular, a type of shame which came from sinning, being sinned against, and having their legitimacy questioned by those in their direct community. Why does this bear so important? Blomberg continues this way. Within the Gospels, Jewish polemic hinted in John 8, 48, and in the early centuries of the Christian era explicitly charged that Jesus was an illegitimate child. After all, he was born of a virgin, Mary, in verse 16. Mary walked around pregnant and swore she didn't have sex with Joseph, and Joseph's like, yeah, it's true. Can you even imagine? This would have been just as difficult for the people of the first century to accept as legit as it would be for us to accept today. Controversy was conceived the moment that Jesus was. However, despite these misconceptions, Matthew doesn't polish the genealogy. He doesn't curate it to make it look good and to take away all questions. 
there's extreme value now in understanding the fullness of Jesus' family because Jesus is not hiding from his family. (sighs) Jesus is not changing the story. Jesus is redeeming it. He's covering them with righteousness. He's not acting like they don't have problems in their family. He's bringing all of the problems, all of the tension, all of the controversy, and he says, these are my people. These are my people. Terah's part of my family. Rahab's part of my family. Ruth is part of my family. Bathsheba's part of my family. Mary is my mom, yo. That is my mom. You see, if Matthew were only trying to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, including these women, is incredibly unwise. He doesn't need to do that. But Matthew is not just trying to prove that he is the Messiah. He's trying to display what kind of Messiah he is. Not just that he is legit, but that he is gracious and kind and compassionate and overwhelmingly merciful and gracious. The sonship of Jesus does not merely tell us that he is the long-awaited hope of Israel, but what kind of Messiah we could have never expected him to be. The Messiah that was promised by God here is now fulfilled in Jesus. The numbers which you all loved and the order, and these women all give valid proof to who he is. After all now, the sonship presumes a family. And so in describing Jesus as Messiah, Matthew is concurrently describing the nature of the son's family, the Messiah's kingdom, if you will. So to put it one way, the genealogy of Jesus teaches us that the family of the son is radically inclusive and also unapologetically exclusive. The family of the son is radically inclusive and unapologetically exclusive. The, the, inclusivity, the inclusive nature, rather, of the family is revealed in the inclusion of these women. Notice they're not just there. He doesn't just say them by name. This is to say that the son is not just simply unembarrassed by them, and he's like, yeah, they're with me. No, God has divinely included them, not just in his family, but in the work of his family. He has not just included sinners in his kingdom project. He uses them for kingdom purposes, Evidenced only, or I used to say evidenced also, by the profound centrality of David. David, if you're trying to make your kingdom look good, pure, and holy, and awesome, you're not going to make David the greatest king of Israel. You're not going to make him the forerunner of the kingship of Jesus, the one who killed some dude, took his wife, and lost the child that they had out of wedlock. That's not who you're going to make sure is central to your genealogy. He doesn't just include the oppressed and the shamed. He weaves them into the fabric of his family. He's not just doing some PR stunt by adding Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. The messianic line depends on them. It runs right through them. They're not charity cases. They're mothers. They're daughters. They're sisters of the king. They are courageous, powerful risk-takers and faithful stewards of the gospel. The people who many of us wouldn't just leave out of our families, but give them no credence in our families, the son makes vital to his family. People we would disregard, Jesus makes sons and daughters. So I'd like to suggest the family of the son is radically inclusive. Scripture bears witness to this, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, Jesus says, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Revelation 21, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. No one is more inclusive than Jesus. And so if we sing at church in the square, come ye sinners, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is that you feel your need of him. The exclusive nature of the family is revealed also in the very existence of a genealogy. There is a single 
family, a family which God has instituted by his own design through Abraham with his own purposes and vision in mind. Like every family, the family of the son has a unique story, vision, and expectation. So anyone, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've thought, no matter what you've said, no matter where you've gone, no matter where you're going, no matter your lifestyle, your family of origin, your personal preferences, your diet, your well-being, anyone can come and become part of the family of God. But, but to come to this family, you have to go through the son. The son is the point of the family. The son is set up so that, the the family rather is set up so that we would see the son. The son holds the family together because it is only through the son that we are restored to relationship with the father. This too is testified and taught throughout the Bible. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No one is more exclusive than Jesus. He gives no wiggle room to make another way a shape, form, fashion, a comfort zone, a pathway, a preference, any other authority, any other idea. There is no other authority but Jesus. This truth is one that we sing as well when we speak the words of in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. And so the family of the son has this persistent duality. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down, church? None perhaps has described this better than the late German scholar and Nazi opponent, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He famously coined the phrase costly grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he says this, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, the living and incarnate, Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all of his goods. We are engrafted into the family of God through a costly grace. Therefore, the family we are welcomed into is simultaneously inclusive and exclusive. This is brilliant in idea but we don't like it. I don't like it. And I'd like to explain to you why. Because every time we come to the Scriptures, we can't just say, here's the reality of the Scriptures, here's the reality of who God is. We have to come to terms with the fact that we don't live up according to the will and word of God, and we must be very clear about how we fall short. The point of this lengthy and symmetrical and beautifully generous genealogy is just this, that Jesus is inclusive and exclusive. Yet we are a conflicted people when we come to this family, aren't we? We're pulled in opposite directions about what family, what our family is meant to be, which leads us to either embrace the idea that we are an inclusive family or we are an exclusive family, but never both. We usually move to one or the other. Either extreme, though, is incredibly damaging, has incredible consequence to it. See, for some, I think we'd like to think that the family is inclusive only. This is a generous and hospitality, hospi- hospitable family, rather. It's, it's quite modern to have this idea that there are no limits, no requirements, to have access, relationship, and blessing. Anyone can come and enjoy what we have. But out of this particular mindset, tolerance is birthed. It's sort of the precedent or the basis of what comedian George Carlin said when he said, religion is like a pair of shoes, Find one that fits for you, but don't make me wear your shoes. Many of us live by this. To make me wear your shoes would be morally repugnant in our current cultural moment because we believe it is neither tolerant nor inclusive to suggest there's only a single pair of shoes for everybody. We're tempted to believe that everyone must choose a path for themselves, which of course is a singular perspective we're asking everybody to take on and all be exactly the same in the way that we think about the world. But that's just me. That's just my perspective. See, unmitigated tolerance is always hypocritical. It suggests all ways are just as right and just as wrong, which is therefore a singular worldview in which we're expecting everyone to embrace it equally. 
Such an approach, I think, leads to a kind of family without an identity and without accountability. Here are the costs that we don't always weigh when we push for only inclusivity. Because identity and accountability require truth. Logically, there must be a real and definable reality or culture which makes us us. And we cannot hold each other to a standard that we have preemptively determined to be relative and merely suggestive. The allure of this type of family is the myth that personal agency, the will to decide for myself, is the most important thing about us. And if we take away personal agency, we have taken away personhood, and we have taken away the person from the person. So ultimately, our own stirrings and belief are the guide of our personal brand of happiness, and there is no moral authority. We do this at Church in the Square. I think many of our own ideas continue to be informed by whatever we believe to be progressive, whatever we believe to be moving the needle forward in our modern society. We're more informed, therefore, by our unsaved friends than what the Bible says about something. And so, we bristle at things like church membership, submitting to elders, and a biblical sexual ethic because none of these seem tolerant and open as we would have them be. Just to list a few. Tolerance is ultimately love without any truth. It's a denial of Jesus as the uncompromising, exclusive son. We therefore view Jesus as gracious but not holy. As Bonhoeffer says, it's graced without the cross, grace without the cross. To suggest that the family is inclusive but not exclusive is to suggest that the cross is unnecessary and that Jesus is not king. This was the situation in Corinth, believe it or not. The church was behaving permissively as if the holiness of God was a mere suggestion or myth. They cut the line during communion. They slept around with members of their immediate family. They did as they pleased. So Paul wrote them. Here's what he said. What? It's literally an exclamation point in the English translation. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Through accountability and calling upon their identity as the church of God, Paul called tolerant church to holiness. What you desire and what you want does not go. What the scriptures teach is good and right and beautiful. That's what goes. Some of us are really comfortable, and now I'd like to talk to you. For others, we love the idea of an exclusive family. Just give me some guidelines and boundaries. Love it. We love truth, we love accuracy, we love faithfulness. This is our religious type of family, having clear boundaries around what it means to be us, who's in, who's out, who's saved, who's not, who's the saint, who's the sinner. I'd like to know which team you're on before I talk to you. One way we do this is through moral and religious legalism, meaning that we consider our church family to be made up of morally superior people, morally superior to our friends and our neighbors around us. We even call them the others, Others out there, we look down on others because we have come to know Jesus and they haven't. Can I suggest to you that grace is meant to do the exact opposite of what it often does to us? Instead of being transformed by the generosity of God, we transform God's generosity into entitlement and what we deserve. Might be a hesitation in your spirit, for instance, in your group when someone confesses a sin and you just kind of go, I've never done anything that crazy. Wow. That really goes on in your head? If you could just think my thoughts, you'd be a lot better. It's pure up here, y'all. It's pure. I just got loving thoughts about people. It might be your desire for our church to say small, whatever that means, so that you can know everybody, keep everybody close. There are many forms of exclusivity. But for us, perhaps I think that one of the most damaging forms of exclusivity for us here at Church in the Square comes down to culture, particularly with relationship to money and socioeconomics. By and large, we are a very wealthy church. Can I speak plainly to you, my brothers and sisters? By and large, we are a very majority culture, a white church. It's all good. I love white people. It's all good. I have a lot of them in my family. (laughs) But what can happen is that this can easily become an exclusive church culturally because there are things that make up the majority if we're not careful. This rarely happens in overt ways, like developing a mindset of theological differences between the rich and the poor, rich being righteous and poor being unrighteous. But more times than not, it is very subtle. Speaking with someone just this week 
It can be as simple or as subtle as always talking about where you have vacationed most recently. Always bringing that up, what trips you have taken, where you have gone, what you have done. Maybe asking, hey, we're going to go to this thing and it costs money. It's expensive. This particular restaurant we heard is going to be opening. Why doesn't everybody in our group come to that? Unintentionally, what we have done is said, this is the kind of community we are. This way of exclusivity calcifies in the community and all of a sudden that's who we become. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's not my intention, Pastor. That's not, that's not what was in my heart. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about vacations and going out because those things are fun. I'm not trying to exclude anyone. But friends, exclusivity does not require intentionality. Please let that settle. Exclusivity does not require intentionality. In fact, it usually demands the opposite. In fact, the absence of intentionality is what leads to the exclusive embrace of a particular kind of people and a particular kind of church. That's what happened to Peter. This is what happened to Peter in Galatians chapter 2, and then Paul put him on blast. Now, just for clarity, we know this. We went through Acts. Paul is not perfect. So just because I bring up two places where he's putting people on blast, he has his own issues too. We are familiar with this. But yet again, here comes Paul as the voice of reason. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from, Jeru- from, from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul calls this exclusivity, this exclusive lifestyle, hypocritical and out of step with the gospel. Peter did not wake up that day and go, I'm going to be racist today. Watch this. Subtly, he got scared when people who he knew would hold him accountable, who were hypocritical, who were religious, who were exclusive, and he backed away from the call of the gospel because it was going to become costly. And all, this is a form of legalism. Legalism is truth without love. It's a denial of Jesus as the radically inclusive son. We therefore view Jesus as holy, but not as gracious. And to suggest the family of the son is exclusive, but not inclusive, is to suggest that the cross was merely a spectacle of God's wrath and power and not of his love. Abraham obeyed God, walked up a mountain with his son, The Lord told him to take his son and sacrifice him on the altar. He's doing this, and the Lord does not provide a sacrifice until Abraham's hand is raised and his son is laying on the altar. Can you even imagine? Abraham is told, you're going to be a father of a nation, and you're going to bless all of the nations. And he takes his one and only son and puts him on the altar because God told him to. The nation was in peril. The nation was on the line. His family was on the line. David's line was in question when his infidelity with Bathsheba led to the death of their child. Their family line was on the line. For his hateful violation of God's law, David and Bathsheba lost their son. Overwhelmed with sadness and lament and contrition, David knew that the family line had now been compromised. Not until David fully understood the weight of his sin did God bless them with Solomon, or as I like to remember, his name is Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. The family and throne were preserved. God upholds His righteousness and provides a way of grace, costly grace. Jesus is Abraham's son. Jesus is David's son. Jesus is a cosmic counterpoint to the inclinations of our modern and religious hearts. After all, it is on the cross where we see the fullness of grace and holiness, the fullness of inclusion and exclusivity, the fullness of a God who loves and a God who is true, because it is on the cross where God shows that He is too holy to overlook your sin, but He is too loving to banish you from His family forever. The Heavenly Father, therefore, makes a way back to Himself through His Son. The advent of this season has much to do with waiting. Waiting for the fullness of that kind of kingdom to come. Waiting for that fullness of that kind of family to be fully realized. But church, we are meant to become that family today. 
We are meant through the power of the Son to become these kinds of brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters that say, come one, come all, come anybody, but come through Jesus. Now, the timing of that through Jesus may be different. They, they, we may invite somebody to come for six months until they truly understand who Jesus is. And not just to church, into our family, into our home, into relationship. Sometimes, real talk, it is just this simple. Find out your neighbor's name and then speak to them by name. Did I blow your mind? Sometimes that's all we need to be first as a missional people who are radically inclusive and exclusive. Sometimes we're too scared of like, i got to have a whole plan together about how this person is going to go from death to life. You don't need a plan. Jesus already has the plan. He's not waiting for you to figure out how to save somebody. He's like, yo, I know how to save somebody. Bring them to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Some of us are worried about our reputation. Even this invitation to something like Las Posadas, where we're like, what are people going to think about us? See, because when you begin to live this radically inclusive and radically exclusive life, people are going to think all kinds of crazy things about you. To that, I give you the modern-day prophet, Rosaria Butterfield, in her wonderful book, The Gospel Has a House Key. And here is the edge, she says. Christians are called to live in the world, but not like the world. Christians are called to dine with sinners, but not to sin with sinners. But either way, when Christians throw their lot in with Jesus, we lose the rights to protect our own reputation. Oh, that we would be a people that didn't protect our family name, but gave ourselves over to the one who has a name that is above every name. That it's in his family, in his name, where we find our assurance, our peace, a costly grace that leads to costly obedience. What the sonship of Jesus means for us then is that we ought to develop a theology of both suffering and celebration. This will only come through diversity, socioeconomically, ethnically, experientially. And here, what Professor Sung Chun Ra has to say as he reflects on these theologies at work. In his book, Peace, Walter Bergerman writes about this contrast between a theology of the have-nots versus a theology of the haves. The have-nots develop a theology of survival and suffering. The haves develop a theology of celebration. Those who live under suffering live their lives aware of an acute precariousness of their situation. Worship that arises out of suffering cries out for deliverance. Their notion of themselves is not that of a dependent people crying out for a vision of survival and salvation. Lament is the language of suffering. Those who live in celebration are concerned with questions of proper management and joyous celebration. Instead of deliverance, they seek constancy and sustainability. The well-off do not expect their faith to begin in a cry, but rather in a song. They do not expect or need intrusion, but they rejoice in stability and the durability of a world and social order that have been beneficial to them. Praise is the language of celebration. Let me say it this way for us as a church family. We will know that we are becoming an inclusive and exclusive church by the work of Jesus when celebration and suffering are held in tension in our community. When we don't try to wipe away tears of our brother and sister and give them a song to sing, but we seek to lament with them when we don't allow lamentation to overwhelm us, but to know that joy comes in the morning, when we walk in this tension, we will know, we will have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who though in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, What a gift that through your Son, we can call you our Father. Forgive us for the ways that we suppose your community to be so bleak and unimaginative that it is merely inclusive or exclusive, but never both. 
Forgive me, Father, for my tendency in this. Forgive me, Father, for the ways that I think to have all of the right answers, to be theologically tight and have all of your thinking down, that's what brings you into the kingdom. Forgive me how I've overlooked your gracious and open arms that whosoever would come. Forgive us, Father, for the ways that even as a community we've calcified, we've sort of grown into a kind of community that is not reflective of your family. Help us. Even reveal to us now, not that we're defensive and come to terms and just try to say, it's okay to do what I'm doing, but Father, to say, what is your will? I pray that we'd confess sin. I pray that we would lament brokenness. I pray that we would celebrate the joy and hope that we only have in you. Help us to do that now as we come to your table. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.